Welcome to the Revenue Cycle Minute, brought to you by the passionate practitioners of Warbird Revenue Cycle Optimization. The Revenue Cycle Minute is designed to bring you best practice revenue cycle ideas and strategies while enabling your entrepreneurial spirit. Our goal is to educate, entertain, offer new perspectives, and inspire you to take action. Without further delay, welcome to the Revenue Cycle Minute. Welcome to the special edition of the Revenue Cycle Minute, brought to you by Warbird Revenue Cycle Optimization, where our mission is to educate, entertain, and inspire you to take action. My name is John Bain, and I'm joined by my colleague, Lori Daigle. Today, we are excited to discuss the 2022 OPPS final rule and new requirements for pricing transparency. We want to thank you for trusting us with your most valuable commodity, your time. Our goal is to provide you with specific detail that can be immediately incorporated into your revenue cycle, thereby shortening the learning curve, easing implementation, and facilitating success. Our team at Warbird Revenue Cycle Optimization is comprised of passionate practitioners. Our team has decades of experience performing every function within the revenue cycle. This allows us the ability to relate and empathize with the concerns, opportunities, and frustration experienced by staff throughout your revenue cycle. Likewise, our revenue cycle optimization team has worked with every type and size of hospital. This allows us to customize solutions that fit your culture, situation, and customers. If you have any questions on the material covered during this presentation or other revenue cycle concerns, our contact detail is provided at the end of the slide deck. Please feel free to email, call, or text. We want to be your revenue cycle resource. Let's get started. Today, we're going to review the 2022 OPPS final rule. Specifically, we're going to deal with some topics concerning inpatient-only procedures, review some 340B drug changes, go into some pricing changes, and then detail specifically some updates and challenges that we're seeing across the industry regarding pricing transparency. Likewise, today we're hoping that you're going to learn from this presentation and take the detail provided to inform business decisions across your revenue cycle. We want you to take the slide deck and incorporate them into your revenue cycle and generate discussion to ensure applicable changes are understood. We're hoping that you take the detail to create processes to correct or modify current practices and ultimately validate your processes in place to ensure a successful revenue cycle. I want to bring Lori into the conversation now. Lori has reviewed the final rule and distilled the content into actionable components. How are you today, Lori? I'm well. How are you? Very good. Very good. Thank you very much for putting this content together. So before we get going, can you just take 30 seconds and just explain to our listeners what you hope they'll get out of this presentation and how they might be able to use the detail as they move forward? Sure. I think it's important for facilities to know all of the changes that take place throughout the year, regulatory changes and specific payer changes before they start to impact their business. Lots of times I see people are more reactive. They find out there've been changes through denials or through getting compliance letters, or maybe just in loss of revenue because things start to change and prices are dropping and things like that. 
So what I hope is that people will start to use this information to plan in advance instead of reacting to changes they didn't know were happening. So putting together the information as you learn things in advance will allow you to create the vision of what you want your business and your facility to look like as a result of these changes, to strategize around making these things happen, to work with your team to execute the changes that are necessary for overall success. So to incorporate all of the changes that happen in healthcare, ultimately to the success of your organization. All right, thank you, Lori, for that. Well, why don't we take a second here and let's get started. Let's begin with your first area of concentration, inpatient-only procedure updates. Thanks. I wanted to take a minute to talk about the inpatient-only list because this was a big reversal of CMS policy. The vision last year was to do away with the inpatient-only list and to ultimately move toward making everything an opportunity for outpatient in a facility. They've got a lot of pushback from the AMA, from the hospital associations, from individual commenters to the final rule and proposed rule, saying that that wasn't safe, that it wasn't based on evidence-based criteria. There was no reason to move away completely from the inpatient-only list and think of everything as an opportunity for an outpatient procedure. So effective in 2022, CMS halted the planned elimination of that inpatient-only list and they supported the concerns that they got due to safety and quality. 298 procedures were removed from the inpatient-only list last year and made outpatient, and were put back on the inpatient-only list this year. The only things that were removed from the inpatient-only list last year that remain as outpatient opportunities are lumbar spine fusions, shoulder joint reconstructions, ankle reconstructions, and the corresponding anesthesia codes. Everything else was moved back to inpatient. I think this matters a lot, and this change in vision for CMS matters a lot to small hospitals because if everything were to move to outpatient procedures, it would really impact how small hospitals that have maybe short stays as part of their business plan think about these procedures. I think it's good that we stop and look and think about it and go back to this evidence-based criteria. As a result of that, they also took 258 of the 267 procedures that had been taken off the inpatient-only list and added to the surgery center, essentially, list and put them back on the inpatient-only list. They restored this previous philosophy of using evidence-based criteria to make future consideration about the inpatient-only list. So moving forward, they're saying they will go back to only moving things as it makes sense to move them. If there's a change in technology or if there's a change in practice in the way procedures are performed, they will use that information as the decision to take things off the inpatient-only list again, not just a business decision to randomly remove things. So we look forward to that change so that we can prepare better for the future of knowing what sorts of things might become outpatient in the future. Because of this confusion, CMS has said that anything that was removed from the inpatient only list is going to be exempted from two midnight rule rack reviews. You will have time to prepare for those things that were previously inpatient only that are maybe now they're saying to perform outpatient 
but they're giving you this year to prepare for that and they will not audit to see that you're doing them outpatient. Thank you, Lori. That's terrific. So help me understand a couple of things. So if I am C-suite, CFO, CEO, and I'm looking at this, and first off, we obviously get a lot of questions in regards to the OPPS rule is only meant for big hospitals. It doesn't impact rural or critical access. This impacts everybody, correct? It does, because if these things were going to move toward outpatient only, and everything was going to be expected to have a patient out within two days, according to the two midnight rule, then that impacts the way a lot of small or critical access hospitals might think of procedures that will be performed. It also may impact how you get a patient flow into your swing beds from other facilities if things are now going to be straight out outpatient only, two midnight rule and out procedures. So understanding the concepts that are here and where the future is going also informs small hospitals and helps them make decisions moving forward. Boy, that makes a lot of sense. So let me just ask and follow up. So from a behavior standpoint of the revenue cycle, if I am CEO and CFO, so when I'm looking at this change and it being implemented into my revenue cycle, whether it's coding, business office, charge master, what should I expect? What should I be looking for? How do I know that we understand it and we're doing this correctly? Well, if last year, any of these 298 procedures that were moved back to the inpatient only list, if these were performed in 2021 in your facilities, you would have created separate fees and separate line items to bill them on an outpatient claim. Now they've moved back to the inpatient only list and they will be reimbursed by commercial payers according to your DRG payment. And for critical access or smaller hospitals, if you're doing any of those procedures, they will be included as an inpatient only service now. So back to having room and board rates and planning for an inpatient stay. I'd like to take a minute too to talk about 340B because this has been in the news lately or rather for the last few years because of the changes CMS wants to make that really are impacting smaller hospitals. When CMS made the change to cut 340B payments nearly 30%, they moved the payment rate to average sales price minus 22.5%. The American Hospital Association really spoke out against this, and as did many hospitals. American Hospital Association took the position that CMS doesn't have the right to make that change. They did take this through the court system, and some of the times they won, some of the times they lost, but CMS has upheld their decision to keep it at ASP minus 22.5%. This year, the Supreme Court has accepted this. They're agreeing to hear this challenge from the American Hospital Association to CMS. So we're looking forward to that decision and seeing what they have to say. It will significantly impact how CMS treats 340B moving forward and how hospitals continue to get paid. Even with this 22.5%, ASP minus 22.5%, rural sole community hospitals, children's hospitals, and PPS exempt cancer centers will continue to be accepted from that change. But everyone else that was impacted by this significant cut will be looking forward to the Supreme Court decision. CMS is also changing the way they look at colorectal screening services. The Affordable Care Act 
instituted policy that screening services would have no coinsurance and no copays. And screening colonoscopies were part of that change. Unfortunately, the idea behind a screening colonoscopy is to proactively look for issues. The way things are coded for colonoscopies is if no finding is made as a result of the procedure, it's coded as a screening colonoscopy. However, if anything is found, it's coded as a diagnostic colonoscopy. Now, that ultimately has the effect of charging that patient with a coinsurance or copay or whatever they have associated with that service. This really is counterproductive because patients go into these procedures expecting to have no balance after. However, it becomes a good news, bad news situation for the patient. The good news is we found something and caught it in advance. The bad news is now we're going to charge you for it. And this has always been the case since they came up with no coinsurance for screening services. CMS will look to change this over the next few years. This year, there will be no change. But starting next year, in 2023 and through 2026, the coinsurance will be reduced from 80% to 85%. From 2027 to 2029, that coinsurance will go down to 90% for any test that's converted to a diagnostic. And in 2030 onward, there will be no coinsurance assessed for a screening colonoscopy that converts to a diagnostic colonoscopy or what we call a colonoscopy with findings. So it's going to take a while to get there, but eventually CMS will close that loop that they created as a result of these changes. Providers will still have to put the modifier PT to indicate that it had been planned as a screening service and converted to a diagnostic service. This will become very important as we start to reduce the coinsurance to make sure that it's processed correctly. All right, thank you, Lori. So quick question from an operational standpoint, what do hospitals, C-suite, business office, is there anything that they have to consider today? What are they planning for? How do they incorporate this into their revenue cycle, realizing that this is something that's going to happen over the next couple of years here? So for 2022, there will be no changes for hospitals. They can take this time to begin to prepare for 2023. In 2023, that increased coinsurance from CMS will mean a few different things. If you had trouble getting paid from patients, it will mean that CMS is picking up more than they used to. For critical access hospitals, for instance, you'll be getting that 5% extra of the 101% cost to charge ratio. The patient will be paying that 5% less, and in a critical access setting, they pay based on the build amount. So that will impact the bottom line for critical access hospitals as we transition through these next few years, and they'll have to get ready for that. For larger hospitals and for smaller hospitals alike, you want to make sure that your business office is aware of it. In billing and follow-up, know that Medicare will be picking up more coinsurance as we go along. Because that way, if the MAC doesn't get it right right away, they will be able to alert them and get that payment corrected before the patient gets a bill. There's also some changes around how drugs and biologics reimburse for this year. What we call biosimilar medications, and these are biologic medications that are similar to others that are already on the market. So those would be new biosimilars. 
And a biologic medication is one that interacts with the patient's system to actually change, usually your immune system, to fight whatever it's targeting. Effective in 2022, CMS has recognized that when a new biologic hits the market and others start to use make similar products, they're not exactly the same. So they don't treat it the way they do a generic drug. As a result, they will have pass-through status on each biosimilar as it becomes created, not just on the first one that's developed. Additionally, for drugs that had pass-through status in 2022, as a result of the pandemic, CMS has extended that pass-through and they're going to be paying that extra amount for the whole year 2022. No pass-through status will expire in 2022. Just tell me, understand one thing. So give me a little bit more of a better definition for what a biosimilar actually is. And if it's part of my hospital, how do I recognize what those drugs might be? Okay, sure. Biosimilars or biologic medications are those patients that interact with the patient's body. They're the medications that you might see on TV saying it will treat one thing, but it may cause another condition. That's because it's actually changing the immune system of the patient in most cases. These medications will take longer for infusion times and for more oversight from the nurses in the hospital. As time goes on and a biosimilar or a biologic becomes more common in the marketplace and more patients are getting it, they can identify that it won't take as long. Patients aren't as likely to have reactions to it. Usually when a new one comes out, it's treated more like chemotherapy in terms of the way the nurse has to oversee the patient to ensure that there's no toxicity or there's no reaction. Payers will usually treat it like chemo, reimburse more, and ask for the chemo administration code for those new ones. However, as one becomes more available and then more information is gathered, lots of times the payers will say, we're going to treat this as a therapeutic infusion and not pay that extra anymore. All right. Now, that's great, Laurie. Thank you. So one other question we get routinely and just need a good definition for people looking at this. Can you just help define what pass-through status actually means? Sure. Pass-through status means these medications, as they come out, new medications, they're not bundled into any other procedure. They're not considered incidental. They are actually separately reimbursable. CMS will do this for a period of time on a lot of new medications because they don't know how to charge for it. They don't know how it will impact what other service it may be bundled into. So what they do is they pass it through their system without hitting any edits, and they reimburse for those medications. They do this for an information gathering period, and at the end of that period, the pass-through status ends, and they'll either make a decision to continue separately reimbursing it or include it in whatever procedure that's associated with that medication and not pay separately for it. As a result for the opioid crisis and what everybody is trying to do to mitigate this crisis and keep patients from getting addicted to drugs or having these adverse reactions, one of the things that CMS has done is they recognized that in an ASC setting, in an ambulatory surgery setting, they paid extra for opioid medications for pain management and they did not pay extra for non-opioids. Effective in 22, they've kind of flipped that, and they're going to pay extra for non-opioid pain management drugs in an ASC setting. What they hope this does is remove the financial incentive to use opioids in those settings 
and again, mitigate that likelihood that patients may become addicted to those medications. Now, CMS instituted a lot of changes, a lot of flexibilities because of the COVID-19 crisis. They tried a lot of things like remote patient visits and remote services, remote direction of particular services within the hospital. And one of the things they've identified is from their perspective, some of these things are working. So they're seeking comments to see how organizations feel about some of these changes that they've made and whether or not they should be made permanent. The things they're considering is hospital-based mental health services. They're furnished right now, at least they can be furnished in the beneficiary's home. And they are asking people to comment on whether or not that's working and that should be made permanent. The use of communication-based technology for mental health visits has been a big change. Virtual physician direction of rehab services like pulmonary rehab, cardiac rehab, and intensive cardiac rehab. This will move closer or has moved closer to what we consider general direction. Right now, the physician that's overseeing these rehab programs does not have to be in the hospital. They can virtually direct it. They can be available by telephone or via televideo. And CMS is asking if that should be made permanent. The last thing they're considering is that outpatient hospital specimen collection fee for collecting the swabs for COVID-19. Should that be made permanent? So if you're feeling like these things are helpful, you would comment to the proposed rule and let CMS know how it's working for you. All right, Laurie, so you mentioned making a comment. So I get a lot of feedback and inquiries from folks just as to how do I do that? Does everybody have an opportunity to make a comment? Does it have to be a specific person within the hospital compliance? Help me understand so that if this is stuff that might be beneficial to my hospital, how do I make my voice heard? CMS doesn't make any requirements as to who within an organization can comment. Usually that decision is made internally. Sometimes it's the medical director. I've seen it be the revenue cycle director or you know, compliance sometimes weighs in on these things. With each proposed rule comes the instruction on how to comment. So at the proposed rule, you can read about how to make a comment on that particular rule, with whether it's the physician final rule, the outpatient hospital final rule, they all have that opportunity. And the instruction on where you write and how you construct the comment is within each proposed rule as they come out. That's great, Lori. So from a perspective of our rural partners who are listening today, it really behooves them that if they think that this might be something that might provide long-term use for their community, they really should comment and reach out and try to make this a permanent opportunity just because this might end up going away. So am I correct in that? Yes. If it's something that you think your community could benefit from, and you can instill within your facility, absolutely make a comment to the final rule and let CMS know how that will impact you and your community. How CMS makes decisions to change the prices annually when they make changes. Now, critical access hospitals may not think this impacts them because they don't get paid on what we call APC assignment. For outpatient services, CMS assigns what they call an ambulatory payment classification, and that's how they make a determination how they will pay for those. They don't pay critical access hospitals using this measure. So lots of times critical access hospitals may not think it's important to them. But if you create your fees as some markup over CMS or APC, 
you need to know when these things change. Even if you don't, you want to think about, as particularly now as we move into the No Surprises Act and pricing transparency, how others are setting up their prices. So it's important to understand that these things change and why they change. CMS will annually take a look at, based on the cost reports they get throughout the country and on new technology and how services are being delivered, whether or not they have the right assignments, whether or not they've grouped procedures and um, supplies and medications appropriately to price them. Right now, they assign them into grouping depending on whether it's a similar work effort associated for the procedure, if there's similar costs associated with them, and they assign them into different categories called APCs. These are evaluated annually based on changes to CPT or HCPC usage. Sometimes AMA will change a CPT and say it now includes things like guidance, or it's performed bilaterally or unilaterally. They keep the same CPT, but they make a slight change to the description. It changes how you use it and how much you should charge, how costs associated with it. Sometimes we have changes to the assigned units for drugs or supplies. So we keep the same HICPIC, but it changes the number of units within that HICPIC. So that changes the price. If there's a change to the cost of packaged supplies or services that are normally included in the procedure, that will change the price of the procedure and the cost of the procedure. So these are things you have to take into consideration because it is a cost-based situation. So it's a good idea to understand these changes annually and to update your own charge masters and your own CDMs to reflect APC changes when they occur. I've taken as examples some of the larger changes in APCs. If something has migrated from one APC to another, and that's caused a significant difference in price, then you need to be aware of that if you provide this service or this supply. For instance, I'm looking at some of the COVID-19 medications that are very common. Lots of people are providing these. If you look at that first one, Cassevarian m Divimab, that's Regeneron. Lots of people are using that. That changed from the APC assignment 5694 to 1506. And it changed the price from $310 to $450. So that's a significant increase in reimbursement on that from CMS. Some of these other procedures, for instance, if you look at lithotripsy procedures, the reimbursement doubled on that. If you're performing any services that change from one APC to another, you should be aware of that. You should take a look at it within your organization and see if it significantly impacted the price make a decision on whether or not you should modify your price accordingly. If you take a look at the bottom two on this, these are the COVID-19 vaccines. The price for the vaccines increased from $15.50 up to $40. So that's a three-time markup on this, or rather a three-time increase in reimbursement. That's something everybody should be aware of. Now, sometimes the APC rates are reevaluated based on the cost of the services, but it doesn't change the APC assignment. So it doesn't actually change the grouping to which they're assigned, but it does impact the fee. We need to be aware of these things as well. This might happen because of an inclusion or an exclusion of a package service. Something that used to be included is now separately reimbursed, and that drops the fee or the rate associated with that service. Even critical access hospitals need to be aware of that. 
because you'll be having that add-on charge now. So you want to consider, does that mean you should drop your price of the previous procedure? Likewise, if they bundle in more things, you want to increase your price too. Because chances are, particularly if it's due to an AMA or CPT change, other payers will be doing that as well. So every year, just like you should be looking at whether something changed from one category to another, you should be looking at whether or not the fee increased for an entire category. Now here I've given examples similar to the last slide. What I've done is I've taken the ones that changed the most so you can see what kind of an impact it has and how important it is to adjust your fees accordingly when this takes place. That first medication has to do with PET scans, not something necessary that a lot of smaller hospitals might do, but you can take a look and see it increased 100%. If you don't modify your fees accordingly, the costs went up that much. So you wanna make sure that you're accurately tracking that. The second one is a biosimilar to Synvisc medication, fairly common one, that increased 75%. And if we go down to the COVID-19, I want a couple of injections that didn't change APC classification, but they did increase their payment rate. So these ones were $25.50 last year. This year, they're $40 again. So significant increase in price there. Be aware that these prices change. If you assess your charge master and you assign your fees according to some markup over CMS, the more things change here and you don't adapt your charge master accordingly, the further and further align, out of alignment you will get with CMS. So be taking a look at these things and understand that this happens. Okay, so Lori, you mentioned the importance of looking at the charge master here. So first off, the descriptions that you provided in this table really should be for those HICPIC codes and the drugs should be reflected with those units of measure in the charge master, correct? Absolutely. If we take a look at the second one, J7331 for Sinojoin, that's one of those Synvisc medications that are similar to Synvisc, very, very common medication. It's a per milligram code. So if you price it in your charge master per vial, you want to make sure your price reflects the difference between those two. And if you think about things from a pricing transparency perspective, if on your website you have that listed at the per vial price, but you have a description at the per milligram price, you are not representing that appropriately. So this is an opportunity to understand how things look at the per milligram or per pick level and make sure that you're pricing accordingly to that as well. So this is a really important thing. If I am CEO, CFO, revenue cycle director, we know across the industry, hospitals don't build drugs really consistently or well, or can really ever answer the question if their drugs got paid correctly. So if I'm leadership of a rural hospital and I'm looking at this, this really has the chance for us to incorporate the entire revenue cycle because I have to be sure that nurses and coders and pharmacists, billers and follow-up people are all on the same page so that they can be sure that they've got the appropriate unit, appropriate fee, and are ultimately getting paid appropriately for all of these drugs. So this is a really important step in an important area to focus in on this year to make sure that they're getting maximum opportunity, right? Yeah, definitely. I do see lots of times when I look at charge masters, 
And organizationally, it may be because your pharmacy leadership changed or something else happened. But I'll see if I look at 100 drugs, some of them might be priced at the per vial size. Some of them may be at the HICPIC size. And some of them might be charge editable and expected to be changed each time it's administered. When there's no consistency in how things are priced, then you don't know, for instance, if the people that are pricing it now inherited a charge master that they have no understanding of how the prices were assigned. So you don't know how you're getting paid or whether or not you're getting paid enough or appropriately if you don't know how they're assigned and how they're charged out. I also wanted you to take a look at some of the significant decreases in payment for the exact same reason. If we take a look at how they reduce prices, you want to make sure that your charge master accurately reflects that as well. Taking a look at that first drug, that went down 3,000%. If you are giving some of these medications, and most of these are drugs, the actual cost of the medication had this significant a change, your charge master should be adjusted accordingly, especially if you look at things, how they're priced per vial. So if you don't have the right charge assigned with the vial and you're actually you know, billing out a vial as a, a milligram or vice versa, things get even further out of line that way. And when we think about No Surprises Act and making sure that patients understand things fully, it's really important to get the prices right. Thanks, Lori. So one of the questions that we get routinely is the relationship between these APC changes at the CMS level and the commercial payers. We've always looked at CMS and their changes to the APCs as a leading indicator. What's the likelihood or the time frame that if I'm a business office director that I should be concerned about Blue Cross or Aetna or United making changes similar to this that is going to impact my reimbursement? Well, that's an excellent question, especially for hospitals that might have, for instance, percentage charge contracts. If a medication doubles in price or correspondingly goes down 50% and you have percentage charge contracts, you may not be um, priced appropriately to cover the cost of your medication. If medication goes up 100% and you don't change your fees, you're getting paid less by that commercial payer that's percentage charge then it actually costs you to provide that medication. Similarly, if payers don't change their fee schedules, you might want to reach out to that payer and say, hey, look, we still have a fee schedule reflecting the old rates, but we're paying twice as much for this medication now. And everybody is. And CMS has recognized that and increased their fees. So you can ask for consideration or review of your contracts that way. So how do I look at the charge master's as these changes come out, because you don't want it to take days or weeks to evaluate the changes. Excel has very simple formulas where you can take that APC table, it's called Addendum B in Medicare. I've put that link right at the top for Addendum B Medicare. And you can compare the actual fees within your charge master to Medicare and see does your markup or does your price make sense according to what the current price in Medicare is. You can also use this to compare last year's Addendum B file to this year. So last year, Medicare price list to this year. If Medicare has made a significant price change, you want to take a look at it, yours, and see if you've made those changes. 
It's a very simple function in Excel. It's called VLOOKUP. If you don't know how to do it or your Charge Master Analyst doesn't use that tool, I put the link to Microsoft at the bottom here that will actually show you how to use that. But it's really simple. You can analyze your entire Charge Master in probably 20 minutes, all of the CPTs associated with it, just by using this function. So I recommend this highly as an exercise every year when the prices change. Wow, thank you, Lori. That's great information. Well, why don't we transition right now and just provide some updates on pricing transparency? Can you give us a quick update on what you're finding and what the updates are for 22 for our listeners? Sure. To start, I'd like to just go through a brief explanation of what pricing transparency is, what CMS's requirements have been all along. Because as I look at charge masters throughout the country, it appears to me that people don't really understand what's expected of them, or they're just not complying. CMS requires two separate files, a standard charge file and a shoppable service file. Even if you have your shoppable services on a lookup tool, the guidelines say you still need to have that machine-readable file on your website. Within the standard charge file, you have to include all what they're calling the standard charges. The gross charge, which is your charge master price, your cash price or your discounted rate for people who are willing to pay cash if you have one, all of your negotiated rates with all of your payers. If it's a government payer, they do not negotiate with you. They pay you what they pay you. Therefore, it does not need to be included in this file. From your negotiated rates, they want you to publicize and have a separate column for your minimum negotiated price and your maximum negotiated price so that people can see that variance. That's what they consider to be their consumer-friendly information. According to CMS, the file has to include the CPT, HICPICS, NDC code, or whatever the identifier is that's required by the payer. Units should be in there if they're appropriate and if they're necessary to explain that particular line item. So, for instance, if you're giving a HICPIC for a drug and your price is for vial size and your description is per vial size, they want you to let the user know how many units of that particular drug are inside that vial. You have to have a plain language description, and that's something that will make sense to anybody reading the file or to the extent that it can make sense to anybody reading it. The revenue codes are helpful, but CMS has said it's not required to provide the revenue code if they can distinguish between charge types based on other information provided. You should have one file per location if you're a multiple location system and the prices vary throughout the system. So those are the requirements that have always been in place. Lots of times I see files that don't have CPTs or HICPICs, that don't have a shoppable service file out there, that don't have all their negotiated rates or publicized rates that are not negotiated. So those are the types of things that I tend to see that I think people need to be aware of exactly what's expected of them. There are a couple of changes to this process for 2022. One has been on how CMS plans to penalize people that don't comply. With respect to the how they audit it, they plan to provide a written warning, a notice of the hospital if they identify specific violations. They will require a corrective action plan. So they will tell you what is wrong and they will expect you to tell them in return how you're going to fix it. 
if the, the noncompliance that they identify constitutes what they're considering a material violation of one of the more requirements, they'll let you know what's wrong and what you need to do to fix it. And then you have to come up with the plan. They're also increasing the penalties. In the past, it was $300 per day as a penalty, regardless of the size of the organization. For 2022, they said they're going to base it more realistic on the size of the facility. It's $300 per day for 30 or fewer beds, and it's $10 per bed per day for larger hospitals, up to $5,500 per day maximum penalty. They've clarified for 2022 what they expect from this machine-readable file. They say this file has to be accessible to automated searches and downloads. That means you have to name it the way they want you to name it, including your tax ID, this, whether it's a standard charge file or the shoppable charge file, and the name of the organization. You can't have any anti-automation tools on your website. So you can't require a form to be completed in order to access it. You can't have a capture or an accept or anything that can't be automated to get by. The files have to be automation friendly. CMS's vision is for organizations to create programs to go out and get everybody's information, get everybody's machine readable files, and then provide a service, for instance, maybe to the public to say, we're going to help you shop across organizations. You see this now for traveling, for things like Priceline and Travelocity. You see it for vehicles. Um, lots of places have popped up and they're offering that service. And now CMS is saying they want hospitals to be more of a retail organization and for consumers to easily be able to price shop across the organizations. In order to do that, they're encouraging companies to go out and get these machine-readable files, and they're telling hospitals they have to be more accessible. That's great information, Lori. So a couple of quick questions. So I know that we've looked at hundreds of files, and a lot of feedback that we get from the CEOs and CFOs is, you know, how do I know whether the quality of the file really is the highest that I can expect? So I know a couple of times we go and we download. So if a CEO goes and downloads it and sees a dollar value of zero, and the negotiated rate. That is something of concern, correct? Yes, because it would be of concern to a consumer. It would be confusing to a consumer. Within the organization, a $0 fee might mean that it's always a bundled service, or it might mean that it's a charge editable line, like we would normally see on things like implants or high dollar supplies. But to a consumer looking at the file, it means it's free. So you do want to go back and Look at your charge master. If there's zero in there, if it means that you don't have a negotiated rate for it, then put an NA in there, N slash A, to indicate it's not negotiated. But don't have a zero dollar inside your charge master because that's telling whoever's looking at it that that service is free. That makes a lot of sense. So give me another couple of examples. If, if I am the CEO or CFO and I'm trying to judge the efficacy of the file, what am I looking for? How do I know that I should be concerned? What should be, you know, one, two or three things that I should just try to use as a, a way to judge that we've done our homework and we're meeting the guidelines? Well, one thing to do is to look for deleted codes. I frequently, when I'm pulling in charge masters to evaluate their pricing transparency file, 
I find lots of deleted codes and sometimes things are deleted 20 years ago are still in the charge master and being published as if you have negotiated rates for them. If you're publishing a negotiated rate on a code that was deleted 20 years ago, I would also be suspect of the way I'm capturing my negotiated rates because no payer still has those on their fee schedules if it was deleted 20 years ago. So be looking for things like that. CMS has said you can't use as your negotiated rate an average reimbursement. So if it's published in there for a deleted code, I'm questioning whether or not they're using the average reimbursement because CMS has disallowed that. I'd be looking for significant variance in drugs. If I'm looking at one charge master and I see half of them appear to be, you know, maybe 20 times Medicare and half of them appear to be less than Medicare, or some are in between, then I'm questioning, are they pricing at the vial size for one drug, at the hick pick for another, or are they just incorrect? So those sorts of things should be looked at. Since they require plain language descriptions, I usually look at descriptions as well. And sometimes I see that the description has no relationship whatsoever to the reported CPT. That means more than likely that the CPT was typed incorrectly and it's been reported incorrectly since that code was put in your charge master. So if they appear to be two completely different codes, that should be looked at as well. Those are some of the more common things I tend to see. Now that's very, very helpful. You know, I think whenever we talk with hospitals, one of the things that we always try to tell them, don't look at pricing transparency as this thing that you have to do. It's really a good opportunity to be able to judge and see how things are going. You're validating your processes. I know that we've had some conversations with some folks that we go through their charge master and we ask them, how long have you been doing pacemakers? And they say, well, we've never done pacemakers. And then we have to say, well, I respectfully disagree because not only do I see the procedure, I see the pacemaker supply sitting in there. And good news is it's only $45,000. So take a chance, make sure that you look through these things. I think it's very, very important. Likewise, one of the areas I know that you've told me a lot about is when it comes to the tools that people are using for the shoppable file and making it so that you need to be able to put in a lot of patient-specific or demographic information, which doesn't really seem to be the spirit of the rule. Help me just talk real quick about the shoppable file issues that you're finding. Sure. If an organization is using a lookup tool for the shoppable service file, it makes sense that they ask for the insurance if they want to tell a patient how much they will owe or what they can be expected to pay or what the negotiated rate might be for their payer and they only want to give them that information. That's acceptable and that makes sense. It doesn't, however, add anything to the patient information to have that requirement for a self-pay patient. So they should consider removing that option. If you have to click self-pay, you don't need to collect the demographic information. Now, I have had to, as I go out and look for shoppable service files, I've had to put in my telephone number. And that is really no bearing on the price that should be returned. So look at the amount of information that you're asking if you have a lookup tool and make sure that you're only asking for enough information to return a correct price. And don't ask patients for health information or PHI or personal information. That's not necessary to collect that price. Wow. Thank you, Lori. Great stuff. We really do appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. So 
to all of our listeners in summary, we really want you to use this presentation to start a conversation within your organization. Use this to validate your process. So we want you to make sure that you ensure participation. We want the right people around the table at the right time to help you make the right decisions. It's really important for you to leverage the internal knowledge and talents that you have within your organization. Use this slide deck to be able to have those conversations. Engage your people. Have them tell you where things stand, whether we understand it, we don't understand it, we made this change. You know, force the issue. If you find, like Lori just mentioned, deleted codes within your file, it is perfectly acceptable to ask why. Why haven't we removed these? Why are these showing up in the public file? Once you do that, it helps you determine the areas, especially for the changes that happened this year, that apply to your hospital and then take action. These are changes that can materially impact not only your claims, but your patients and your reimbursement. So take the time right now, identify those changes that impact your organization, determine who's impacted, and then take specific steps to prepare and adjudicate your processes to make sure that you're compliant, but that you're also maximizing your opportunities. As always, throughout your revenue cycle, it is really important to be specific, assign responsibilities and due dates for changes. These changes occurred effective January the 1st. Let's make sure that your team has done what it's needed to do so that it is current and it's meeting its obligations. And ultimately, too, use pricing transparency as a competitive advantage. Don't look at it as this thing that we have to do. Look at it as an opportunity to validate what you're doing, really ensure that you're providing services that are easy to understand, that you can have good conversations with your patients, and often these are tough conversations, but your patients are looking for people who understand and can empathize with them. Use pricing transparency as an opportunity to really do that and then distinguish yourself between the other hospitals that are not looking as pricing transparency as a competitive advantage. They're looking at it as something that they have to do. The change is palpable. The patients feel it. And internally, your staff can feel that. So in the spirit of assigning specific responsibilities like we just discussed, Lori, can you just take a couple of quick seconds to go through and kind of provide a summary for our listeners so that if they're interested in taking next steps to ensure compliance, who should they talk to, what should be considered, and how do I make sure that we take the steps necessary in our revenue cycle to make sure that we are compliant and ready to maximize opportunities? For the inpatient-only list, for instance, Providers should be aware of the changes, as should coders and case management. Providers should make sure they're writing the orders appropriately. Case management should be aware of what's inpatient only and what isn't, as they, they like to use their tools, their criteria. But for Medicare, for instance, you really want to be considering that two midnight rule. So it's important to understand that around whether it's inpatient or outpatient. Coders need to know whether they are assigning only, you know, DRGs, or if they also need to be considering all of the CPTs associated with it, for instance. So they all should know about it. What they should do with that information is the organization should ensure that the orders are appropriate, the patients are registered correctly as inpatient or outpatient, and the information flows throughout the entire revenue cycle appropriately. For drugs and pass-through payments, finance should be aware of it, and the drug formulary committee should be aware of what's being paid separately and what isn't when they make a decision on what drugs to purchase. 
And Bailey needs to be aware of changes so they can ensure you're being paid appropriately. Finance should determine the impact to net reimbursement on pass-through payments or the expiration of pass-through payments. They should establish a process to make sure that the formulary committee understands reimbursement implications of medications they're considering. And billing should also be aware of whether services are separately reimbursed by payers or would not be separately reimbursed. When you have the APC assignments and fee changes, finance needs to be aware of that, particularly if the charge master is set up as some markup over Medicare. That will impact how you charge your fees. Charge master analysts should be aware of the changes and make sure they keep things in line. Billing should be aware of it, as should contracting. Medicare sets their fees at a very small markup over cost based on all the information they gather from all the cost reports. So if they think they're close to cost, make sure that your fees make sense in your payment from other negotiated rates, your payments from the other payers make sense on how much it actually costs you to perform those services. For pricing transparency, IT should be aware. They should make sure they're setting up the file to be machine readable, user-friendly, accessible, and with no anti-automation. Charge master analysts should be aware of it and ensure that the files that are out there are appropriate. Contracting has to make sure that their negotiated rates are current and accurate and posted accordingly. And compliance has to make sure that they are complying fully with the pricing transparency final rule. And finally, finance should be aware of what the file looks like and whether or not it's accurate and whether it reflects accurately what you tend to bill for your gross charges and what you expect to be reimbursed. On the shoppable service file, you're going to be reporting that net reimbursement for everything, including the ancillary services associated with a procedure. So that ultimately will inform finance as well. The website should be prepared and appropriately updated as necessary. The charge master should be correct so that when it maps to the pricing transparency file, everything is correct there as well. Thank you, Laurie. That's just great information. If you have any questions, I encourage you to reach out and get in contact with us. We're happy to help. There are many varied updates this year and solutions may involve different team members. Reach out if you need assistance. We really want to become your Revenue Cycle partner. Please use these links to download and review the components we've discussed. Bookmark the pages and use them as a reference throughout your Revenue Cycle journey. As we bring this discussion to a close, it's important to understand that the 2022 OPPS review process and pricing transparency should really be considered an opportunity. It's an opportunity to validate your processes, leverage best practices, and address deficiencies. Pricing transparency allows you to showcase your hospital, your services, and most importantly, your people. Neither the 2022 OPPS review nor pricing transparency process will be easy, but if done correctly, the outcomes can significantly impact your financial viability and customer experience. We hope you found the information provided helpful today and that you use the detail to validate your progress to date or as an action item to organize a process to meet the deadlines and be compliant. If you need any assistance, please reach out to see how we can help. On behalf of Lori and the entire Warbird Revenue Cycle Optimization team, we want to thank you for spending time with us today. Until next time, this is John Bain reminding you that revenue cycle success is never an accident. 
It's always the direct result of daily focused action. We hope that today's discussion has inspired you to take action and make the 2022 OPPS updates a vehicle to validate your revenue cycle and improve communication and participation. Until our next discussion, be safe, be entrepreneurial, and take action. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Revenue Cycle Minute. If you have any questions about this topic, suggestions for a future podcast, or questions in general, please email us at jbain at warbirdcp.com. That's J-B-E-H-N at W-A-R-B-I-R-D-C-P dot com. Our goal is to provide content that is meaningful and represents your needs. Please visit our website at www.warbirdconsulting.com where you can contact us directly, receive industry updates, and gain access to on-demand webinars. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen and leave us a five-star review. Remember, success within your revenue cycle is a direct reflection of focus and expectation. We hope this podcast provided new perspectives and most importantly, prompts you to take action. We want the Revenue Cycle Minute to be your go-to revenue cycle podcast. Please come back soon and join us for another episode. Until then, stay well, be entrepreneurial, and take action.